going to turn tonight to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. We want to begin reading at verse 13. <clears throat> then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight to understand this message that's prepared to the end that you might be glorified in our minds and in our hearts for all that you have done and for all that you are as a person. And we make this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I've been uh, thinking about some things for quite some time, how that this Bible is our reference point, apart from which uh, we have no understanding of anything. We are uh, very apparently, as a result of what the Bible teaches, find ourselves in a universe that has no borders, and when you think about such a thing, how in the world can you even have a reference point? We learn in the book of, of Isaiah that direction itself has no reference point um, in an, a universe that has no borders. I mean, think about it. How do, how do you have a reference point? What's the center of it? Uh, what is the, the north, the north, the south, the east, and the west of it if there's no border to it? Apart from this book, we would not know directions at all. And so God has given us directions so that we know what north is because God dwells in the north parts. It tells us that in Isaiah chapter 14. He also, in Psalm 75, talks about the east and the west and the south. And so it's God that gives us a reference point. Another thing is, what is the center of the universe? I mean, we're talking about direction. Uh... And the Lord tells us what north is, and our compass always tells us that. It always points north. But what is the center of a universe that has no border? And we learn from Scripture that it's the earth. And it's on the earth of all the places that are in a borderless cosmos... The center of everything is something we can know because God tells us. It's going to be Jerusalem. When you talk about the center of the whole universe, the center of the earth, it's Jerusalem where God is going to establish His name forever, forever. And so the focus of God is upon that which is the center of everything and it's the earth and it's Jerusalem and then there's the subject of time what is the center of time in a in a in a in a world in a in a in a, uh, a creation that that uh, again has no real reference point I mean how do we how do we have a reference point even when it comes to time 
And God has given us that as well. It was when He came into this world. He divided time from eternity past and eternity future. And He did it by reason of what would take place when His beloved Son came into the world and died upon Calvary's cross. And here we are tonight celebrating what in the mind of God is one of the most important reference points available to the human mind. It's the cross of Calvary and what that should mean for you and me. It's the cross. And so all throughout the scriptures we learn about what is central in the mind of God. And when we believe that, when we understand these things, then we have a reference point. And the happy end of that is we're no longer lost. Uh, We've been found, we've been discovered by the one who knows everything. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. A person that knows Him and follows Him is never going to be lost. And that's the message of the Bible. The title of this message tonight is a little bit different. uh, But the title is The Passion of the Father for His Son. We usually think about the passion of Christ and the focus is around Him and His sufferings upon the cross of Calvary. But tonight I would like to take our thoughts a different direction to consider the passion of the Father. I was thinking about this really quite some time ago and I kind of wanted to bring these thoughts and it just seemed like when I found out that tonight is the Lord's Supper it would be an appropriate time to put some of these things together as we find it in Scripture. And what we find as we study the Bible is that the Father spoke from heaven three different times. Three different times He spoke from heaven. And the passage that we read at the beginning is one of those times. And I'd like for us to notice why. In the 17th verse of Matthew chapter 3, we read, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When you study the context in which that statement was made, you discover that it was made at the baptism of Jesus Christ which is a symbol of death and burial and, of course, resurrection. But the focus is primarily here, the focus of the Father for His only begotten Son that was going to be murdered. Have you ever thought about the heart of the Father? with this being done to his son. The murder of the Son of God. I have parents every once in a while that come here to the school because of bullies. Because some kid that has very little vision of how big the world is and doesn't even realize that children down here that they might punch or slap, or whatever, has a mom and a dad. But their, their little minds are not developed enough to see that far. All they see is the person out there in front of them. And uh, every once in a while, they'll get very upset. And they'll start fighting one another. And sometimes, without a reason, they'll hurt one another. 
I had a parent come see me back, it's been several years ago now. It was a military family, and they had a child here that was being bothered by another student. And it was repeatedly happening. It was just a pattern where this boy, their son, was becoming very discouraged about even coming to Calvary Christian School. And his dad came to see me one day, and he was dressed out in his military uh, uh, apparel. And this guy was about 6'4". He was big. Shoulders this wide, had bulging muscles. And he came in, and he sat down, and he was rather calm. And he says, Mr. Creech, he says, I've got a problem. And I'd like for you to do something about it. And I said, what's that? He said, well, you got a student here that's bothering my child. And I just want to put you on notice. I hope that you can do something about it. Because if you can't, I can assure you that I can. And here's what he told me. And this is the truth. I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said, if this kid hurts my child again, he said, I'm going to come down here to this school. He said, I'll break his legs. He said, I'll break his legs. He said, this is going to stop. And I believed every word of it. <laughs> Not only that, <clears throat> I got hold of the child and I explained to him what's coming and I enlarged his borders. I enlarged his understanding of how big the world is and that there's something beyond the child that he's pestering. There's a daddy and he's a giant in the earth and you do not want to make him mad. It would be a huge mistake. And so I've often thought about this and I was thinking about it as I was studying this message the perspective of a father for his only begotten beloved son. What would the father do if someone hurt his beloved son? What would they do? Well, I can tell you one thing. Uh, it would not be good it would not be good. I was thinking about Psalm 50 and verse 6 where we find a prophecy concerning what the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, suffered when He came in this world. He says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. I was reading that and I was thinking to myself, what would that daddy have done? If some child down here at this school had done this to his son, what would he do? It would seem to me that he would do more than break their legs. Because you're talking about something that is horribly cruel. Think about these words. In Psalm 50, in, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 52, uh, I said Psalm, it's Isaiah, Isaiah 50 and verse 6, and it's, it's uh, Isaiah 52 and verse 14. We read these words. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Are you talking about a description of a horrible crime? Just think about it. What would be the perspective of the father looking down at his beloved son who comes into the world innocent the manifestation of the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ and this was the treatment he was despised 
and rejected of men. It's amazing what Isaiah the prophet says concerning the treatment of this one who came and then was eventually murdered on the cross of Calvary. The thorns on his head, the beating that was so bad he was unrecognizable. The spear in his side. What would be the thoughts of the Father looking down at what was being done to his beloved Son? This is the perspective of this message tonight, is the Father. The Father. The passion of the Father for his Son. What would he do? When you really think about it, you can begin to understand the prison, the eternal prison that God has awaiting those that despised His only begotten Son. And this treatment that He received when He came. You can understand the lake of fire. You can understand that hearts that would not come into Him, that they might have life. What was deserved by such monsters of iniquity that would do such a thing to the only begotten Son of God? You can begin to get glimpses into the reasons for all of this. And you can also see the innocence of the Father in that Hell was not created by God because He wanted to do that any more than our society creates prisons for prisoners. The government does not put people in prison. So how do people end up in jail? Well, the answer is they put themselves there by the choices they make. This book is about making right choices and not wrong choices. And it teaches that if we make right choices, we'll be blessed. But if we make wrong choices, we'll regret it for all eternity to come. And the mother load of responsibility for that outcome is totally upon the person who chose it with their own free will, with countless opportunities to choose different, but chose not to. And so the first time that the Father spoke from heaven was with His eye looking upon this event of events the most central event in all of eternity, the crucifixion of His Son and His death. And the focus of the Father upon that and the kind of emotions that it brought out in Him concerning His Son. I told you earlier that there are three times that the Father spoke from heaven. And we see here that the first time it had to do with His death. The second time is in Matthew chapter 17. And I'm going to read this from verse 5. We haven't got much time, so I want to just read this as quickly as we can. And after six days, Matthew 17, verse 1, and after six days... Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, 
let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if we were to turn to the other Gospels and study out this event of the Transfiguration, you would find out what was central in that event that Peter, James, and John saw. They saw Moses and Elijah having a conversation. And what were they talking about? They were talking about his decease, his death. And so the second time that the Father spoke from heaven, I want you to think about the passion of the Father concerning His only begotten Son. It was what the world was going to do to Him. How do you think He thought about it? What kind of rage, what kind of wrath would be in a Father that would do something like this to His only begotten Son? And then there's a third time <clears throat> that we find something very similar. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 12. John's Gospel, chapter 12. And I'm going to start reading at verse 23 of John chapter 12. And Jesus answered them, this is when the Greeks wanted to see Jesus. The Gentiles, the Jews had rejected him. But light was now going to come to the Gentiles because they would receive him and the church would be born. And so Jesus answered them, that is, the Greeks or maybe his disciples, which had told him about them wanting to see him. And his response was this, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then the Father speaks from heaven. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Again, it was in the context of what the Lord Jesus was about to do. Because this was the week of the Passover. When the Lamb of God would be crucified on Calvary's cross. And so on three different occasions when the Father spoke from heaven, this is God giving us insight into the passion of the Father for His only begotten Son in view of what? man was fixing to do to him. And God the Father speaks from heaven about the glorification of what his son, his only begotten son, was fixing to do. 
And then he says something else. He says, and I will glorify it again. The question is, what does that refer to? Well, happy for you and me, as we're fixing to see. I think that final phrase right there is a reference to his resurrection from the dead. I'm going to glorify it again. I'm going to glorify it in his death. And all of the things related to that event as it relates to the world. And then I'm going to glorify it again as it relates to the whole world of those that will believe why God sent His Son, His only begotten Son, into the world. And so we'll look at each of these. So remember that each time the Father spoke, it had to do with the death of His Son. And the last time, a little addition, it would have to do with His resurrection from the dead. Can any of us imagine the loss of a father for his only begotten son? This is what we're doing here tonight. And it's very important for us to understand this. And it's very important for us to remember what was done to his son. In that he gave his back to the smiters. And his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And how he did not hide his face from shame. He was hanging, listen, think about it. What would we think about it if somebody came down here and took one of these students that belonged to a mom and a dad and stripped him naked and did this to him. What kind of rage would those parents have? We need to see the involvement of God the Father in this right here. The rage, the wrath of God. We need to understand the wrath of God when we read verses like as many as have as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What kind of rage and wrath would a parent have? if someone did this to their son. If you will look with me at John's Gospel, chapter 12, in verse 1, it gives us some insight into the timeline of this chapter. And it's quite interesting to discover that the vast majority and volume of Scripture is in close proximity to the last days of Christ upon this earth. The world could not contain the books that could be written of all that Jesus did. But God purposed to give us a book that would focus on the central thinking of the mind of God concerning what His Son was going to do. And it has to do with this right here. And so it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom He raised from the dead. And so, anybody that studies the Bible knows something about the Passover. 
It was an Old Testament foreshadowing of the lamb that would be slain. And that's what is before us. And it's telling us that these, this setting right here, these words that we're reading, is the last week of the Son of God on this planet. Well, as it turned out, He came into His own, and His own received Him not, but crucified Him. But in the foreknowledge of God and His wisdom, He could foresee that the Gentiles would turn to him because they didn't know what the truth was. Pilate was a, a Roman. He was a Gentile. Essentially the same as the Greeks in terms of understanding. He was philosophically oriented. But with all of his education, he could say nothing better than what is truth? What is truth? And all of a sudden, truth came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And these people who had studied the philosophers listened to him. And many believed on him and followed him. And so, in this passage... We read in verse 18, beginning there. Well, let's just read verse 17 because it it's mentions Lazarus again, which is a, an amazing event. Verse 17, the people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. This is why a lot of the Gentiles begin to turn. For this cause the people also met him, for that he had heard, for they had heard that he had done this miracle. So the word was getting around. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. The world, the world has gone after him. The Gentile world at this point. Verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida, of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come. The hour has come. When it comes to time, again, God divided time at His coming. And it's essentially divided from this event right here. Eternity past, eternity future. And to this very day, this is September, no excuse, yeah, September, is it not? September the 21st, 2022. Well, where did that come from? Right here. God divided time in such a way that we still reckon time back to this event right here. Amazing. Because it happened. Something that happens is true. Something that did not happen, and we claim that it did, is a lie. Truth is what actually happens. We can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. But people get very upset when you tell them the truth. Paul said it this way, Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? The most evidential fact in the course of human history is this right here. And God would make it that way in such a way that whether the world believed it or not, they would celebrate it. And there are people all over this town who have written checks today celebrating this right here. And there's no way around it. 
Because it happened. And so the Lord says, the hour has come. The hour of hours. Of all eternity, this is the central point. The reference point. That God the Father is looking at. And that every person on the face of this earth needs to look at if they want to have hope. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The word glorified, I thought about this, and I honestly, years and years ago, I was thinking about that term, and I was trying to understand it. And one day, it occurred to me, just as clear as it could be, what it really meant. It means incomparable. None to compare with it. That's what it means. Jesus Christ was fixing to do something that you can compare nothing else to. No matter what it is. In human understanding, there is nothing to compare with this. So what would it be? It would be, for one thing, the love of God. The Father. That he would give his give his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In view of what we would do to him, there is nothing to compare to the passion and the love of God for the people of this world. That he would do this, that he would offer. <coughs> Eternal life to those that would be converted and realize the horror of their crime and would repent and be saved. And there's also the glory of the Son. That He would respond to those that despised Him this way. That for the joy that was set before him, he would endure the cross, despising the shame. What is there in the, in the name of love could ever be compared to this event? Right here. From the perspective of the Father and the perspective of the Son of God. Why would he do this? It's the mystery of the ages that he would do this. I'm telling you that that word glory, the glorified, that term, is, is something that has so much depth, there is no way we could ever find the depths of it. That God is like that. That he would love enemies that would do this to him? It's amazing. And so it tells us in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I see Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 all over that verse. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that the world is without excuse. But how does this statement have to do with that? Well, it has to do with it this way. Listen, every time a farmer goes out here and plants seed in the ground, they are they are illustrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about it? Every time you plant a seed in the ground, the only way it can bring forth fruit is it has to die. It has to die. And a seed appears to be something that's dead. But you put it in the ground, in fertile ground, and you water it. And all of a sudden it... it it comes to life. And it's a picture 
of resurrection. And so the message that's going back to these Greeks is this very thing. But then notice verse 25. Because the word that explains that verse is the word conversion. Conversion. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. You can write conversion all over that verse. This is a radical, radical change in a person's life. And it explains the very reason that multitudes on this earth are going to lose their soul forever. Because they don't understand that statement right there. You can't just come to God and, and read the Bible and have this superficial uh, knowledge of what the Bible actually says without it having a converting effect on your entire being in such a way that you change from a self-centered human being that loves nothing more than self and what self wants, which is the human will, to hating all of that and falling in love with God and His way of thinking. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. You can write conversion all over that statement. To be saved, a person has to have a radical change of mind and heart. To not be the way we are in our nature, but to be the way he is in his. It's a radical conversion. And anything short of it is to lose your soul forever. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And it's not preached in many churches in America today and in the world. You got sort of a universal salvation because of what Jesus Christ did. We're all saved. That is not true. There has to be a radical conversion. Verse 26 continues that very thought. If any man serve me, let him follow me. You remember how the disciples left their nets and followed him? Radical conversion. Everything that they were doing vocationally to make a dollar bill, they turned away from it. There are multitudes of people in this world today that profess Christianity that will never turn away from it for the money, for the dollar bill. But that's not conversion. Conversion is hating that which is against God and loving that which is for Him and for the glory of what He did. That's what salvation is really all about. So if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. What an amazing thing in view of what we did to his only begotten son. And he would actually honor us. What kind of God is the father? That he would do such a thing. But these Greeks have come asking the question, and God has given them the answer. And I'm going to tell you something. That answer is the only hope for any human on this earth. That answer right there. And it has nothing to do with our way and the way we would like for it to be. It has to do exclusively with His way and the way He wants us to be. And that is converted. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 13, it's verse 15, where the Lord is explaining why the parables are too complicated 
for people to think about. They don't want to be bothered. They want something simple. And the Lord explains why people are going to go to hell. In that 15th chapter, now excuse me, 13th chapter of Matthew, he said it this way, he said, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted. One of the most important words in that statement is converted. And this is the stumbling stone. And it's a stumbling stone today of a multitude of people that are under the entrapment of this government. This government. Free public education, for instance. Money. There are people that go to church in this town every day or rather every week, that will send their kids to public education over a dollar bill. When it is so evident that the whole system is as anti-God as it can be to the core, it is the reversal of everything that this book teaches. And it's over money. And God explained it in Matthew chapter 6, you're going to worship either of two things. Me or your own security. Money. Which will finance your will being done rather than mine. This is the message to the Greeks. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Again, this is a foreshadowing of something else that the Father is looking for. And I'm going to have to shorten this message. I wish I could keep on going, but there's a point that is very important for us to understand. There are two things in the mind of the Father in view of what was done to His only begotten Son. Two things. One is paying for the crime. It's called justice. Paying for the crime. The price would be eternal. And so when it comes to what we've done to the Son of God and the crucified Him, and we all had a hand in it. None of us are innocent. We're all guilty. The whole world is guilty of death of the Son of God. And so if the price is an eternal debt, how can finite beings that go out here and work for a dollar bill going to offer something to God for the crime? That somehow or other is going to make him look at us and say, well, that's pretty nice. I appreciate that. In view of the crime? I mean, how can we pay the debt that is owed? Well, the truth is, we cannot. It's hopeless. We're damned if we think we can. And so Jesus Christ did the unthinkable. He went to the cross and did something He could do. And He paid the debt. 
sure did. Incomparable. There's nothing that can compare to this. That the Son of God would be willing, that He would go into Gethsemane and say, Not my will, but thine be done, and go to the cross of Calvary and suffer the death that we deserved. Because this is the only thing that would make God pleased in view of our crime is we'd have to pay a debt, an eternal debt with our own death. Can you imagine a father being so upset with somebody for what they've done to their son that he would justifiably say you deserve to burn in hell forever. And in spite of this, the father looks at what his son is going to do. And he says, I'm going to glorify your name in what you have chosen to do. Because God so loved the world, the Father so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And his son was in complete agreement with this. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame because of the love that he has for us. That's what this is about right here. And so Jesus Christ did something we could never do. Paid to send that, but listen. That doesn't take care of the loss. I mean, think about it. We offer to the Father the blood of the Son of God. And we think that the cross of Calvary was everything. Jesus paid it all. And somehow or other now, we're ready for a relationship with the Father and this oneness in the Trinity. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches. The only way that you can really enter into this, I mean, think about it. If you kill somebody's son, what would be the ultimate thing that that person, that parent would want? Well, it's obvious. They'd want their son back. They'd want their son back. So what are we going to do about that? How are we going to give the Son of God back to the Father after having killed Him? How are we going to do that? Well, the obvious answer is we cannot. We can't raise ourselves from the dead, let alone raise Him from the dead. But turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 10. And I'll show you an amazing thought. John chapter 10. Verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now let's take another look at glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. Jesus Christ was going to do for us again what we could never do. And that's present the Son back to the Father alive. Think about it. How could the Father just be satisfied with the blood of Calvary? 
I mean, those of us that are parents that have a child, if somebody killed our child, what in the world could ever restore us to a, a point where there was no enmity, the crime would be forgotten forever by the Father and by the Son. What could we ever do to patch up this, this horror of horrors? What could we ever do? The answer is absolutely nothing. It's not of works. Not of works. It's the gift of God. Well, what is the gift? Twofold. He paid the price. But He raised Himself from the dead and said, Behold, I am He that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And we receive Him as our Savior, alive from the dead because on the third day He rose. And then the incomparable, the glory of God is that He started courting us with His Word. And we discovered what He was really like and fell in love with Him. And He loved us. He loved us before He ever died for us. He loved us. And He says, I want to live with you for all eternity. And I promise I'll never leave you nor forsake you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take you home with me. And I'm going to make you one with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And not only that, um, Colossians chapter 1, if there's anything that has ever gripped my soul, it's Paul's letter to the Colossians where he says this in chapter 1 of Colossians in verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight. Here we are sitting here at Calvary Memorial Church tonight in front of this amazing memorial service of the death of Jesus Christ. And what He did in paying the sin debt in full and then raising Himself from the dead so that we could go to the Father and say, Your Son is not dead. He's alive. And not only that, I love Him. I love Him. And He loves me. And wants to marry me. And be with me for all eternity to come. And Jesus Christ is the one who presents us to the Father. And there's no crime. Because this is what's on the other side of the grave. It's resurrection from the dead with the old man non-existent anymore. Our person as we are right now is going to die, go into the ground and just like a corn of wheat we're going to be resurrected from the dead and we'll be resurrected as though we have never sinned in our existence. And in the mind of God that's exactly how the Father views it. Our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. It's been cast into the depths of the sea. And God says, I will remember their sin no more. And here we are standing before God as though the bullet out of the gun never happened. The cross of Calvary never happened. We're not guilty of anything. 
This is the most amazing book. Only God could write this book. Only God. And the thing to me that's the most exciting about it is that it's the truth. It's the truth. It's not religion. It's the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments that we've had to look at your word. I just pray that you would help us to understand these things. That can only be understood as you illumine our minds by the power of your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.